following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light of Christ in our city and world through the transformed lives of His people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. I want, to talk to, I want to talk to you a little bit about biblical sexuality. There was a question that was submitted um, in the course of our series, uh, this series that we are now uh, five weeks in called uh, Class in Session, and it is a series on all the questions that you have pertaining to the faith. All right, uh, just just things that you things that you've wanted answers to and, and you haven't gotten an answer to. And so here is one of those questions. A question came in about what does the Bible have to say about same-sex attraction, and in particular, how how does the Bible speak to same-sex attraction in light of the fact that it was it was speaking in a day that same-sex attraction was not culturally appropriate, and now it is culturally appropriate. So was it just the Bible speaking to culture? Was it just the Bible kind of just taking the approach or following following the, 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 the standards of that day? And so everybody said, hey, same-sex attraction and same-sex um, relationships are not appropriate, and so therefore it's not appropriate. The Bible just took the position of the culture. What, what's going on in the scriptures, all right? And so that's what we want to talk a little bit about. Um, I, this is more of a topical sermon versus an expository sermon, meaning I won't spend the whole time in this sermon unpacking Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. I'll spend the whole time in this sermon trying to understand a topic, trying to understand a subject, and lightly unpacking a bunch of different scriptures along the way to try to help us bring, make sense out of this subject. So this is not my favorite way of preaching, but I think for today, for what we're trying to discuss, I think right now in this moment is the best way for me to preach. And so that's the way I'm going to preach. So the subject that I want to try to bring some understanding to this morning is a tricky one for a number of reasons. The first reason is that I don't believe this is, there has been any other subject that has shifted or the opinions of the culture has shifted more in the last 20, 30, 40 years than this subject. That's the first reason. The second reason I think this is a tough and tricky subject is because I don't believe there is another subject where Christians in America, generally speaking, have engaged worse in recent memory than this subject. I'll just, I'll just put it on the record for all that's listening. We have done a terrible job trying to address this subject, all right, in this particular cu culture and context, all right? And so this is a very difficult subject because we've done so bad trying to address it and because it shifted so much in the last couple of decades. If there was a point in time where the ideal of homosexuality was so foreign to us that, that it was thought to be, right? Homosexuality in and of itself was thought to be illness. Homosexual desire was thought to be sickness. It was diagnosed in the 50s and 60s and 70s as, as illness all the way up into the, the, the early 90s even. The World Health Organization didn't remove homosexual desire, same-sex attraction from their list of diseases and illnesses until 1992. And so it went from being in the culture scene as sickness, illness, disease to being widely accepted 
to the point that not only, not only is it widely accepted, but in most cases, if you say, I don't necessarily agree with the practice, you would be considered a bigot. That's how far it shifted in the last 30 to 40 years. So it makes it very, very difficult to, to deal with. Now, I wouldn't necessarily call it a mental illness any more than I would call other strong temptations that we suffer from mental illness. I believe one of the big issues that Christians have to wrestle with in our day is how much of our struggles have been categorized in the category of illness by the medical community, medical community because the community carries a worldview that's forced to try to make sense of the world without sin and without desire and temptation. They're trying to make sense of a world without without the categories of temptation and sin, and sin and temptation are what have disrupted the entire world. They're trying, to make a, they're trying to make sense of a world without the category of spiritual warfare. And we know that the devil is truly at work in the hearts of men to disrupt men and throw men and women off course. And so we're trying to make sense of a world without categories that we desperately need in order to do so. And I think that presents problems to us. Serial adultery, for example, is now considered by many, serial fornication is now considered by many illness, sickness, disease, because there's no worldly categories to, to, to associate with sin and temptation, strong temptation and strong desire. But nevertheless, homosexuality has gone from being considered cultural pariah to being culturally embraced for the most part, even if it's in a very small window that we like to call Western civilization and Western history. That makes the subject tough. But again, it also makes the subject extremely difficult because we have been so terrible at engaging people in it. One of the most embarrassing moments in the history of my ministry, for example, was being invited as a guest to speak on the topic of biblical marriage at a rally of sorts. And the embarrassment came when one of the speakers got up and set the table in such a way that it almost seemed like the LGBT community was like a band of Nazis that we were waging war against rather than family members that we know and friends that we know and classmates that we uh, went to school with and coworkers that we work with every day that were not only worthy of our friendship but were worthy of our love and our compassion and our communication effectively of the gospel to, 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 uh, and that communication being given to them through word and through deed. That wasn't, the, that wasn't the sentiment that was set, and that wasn't what was taken away from that moment, and I was extremely embarrassed because of it. I felt like we were making enemies out of people that we should have been making gospel opportunities out of. I felt like people that we should have been befriending and showing the love of Jesus were people that we were creating more hostility and animosity towards, and I felt embarrassed by that. Christians have done more politicizing of this issue than evangelizing of this issue and discipling through this issue. And it is more, it is, it is, it is now more than anything, it's that that's caused us to lose so much ground in the culture today. So for those two reasons alone, I think it's healthy that we discuss this and tackle this. My goal is to spend um, time addressing a number of false narratives about same-sex practice and a bunch of false narratives about the folks who are looking to engage with others that are engaged in same-sex practice. So, so the folks that stand against same-sex practice, that believe that it's wrong and that are trying to engage the culture in it, 
There's a bunch of false narratives that I want to talk to you about. And then the people that may even be struggling with same-sex attraction, there, there, there's a bunch of false narratives that I want to talk to you about. And I hope between all those false narratives, we can come to some truth and we can come to some gospel truth. Amen? So let me say from the outset that I'm not an expert on this, right? Neither am I a person who struggled with this. So what I've done is I've spent a great bit of time laboring to read from those that are experts and laboring to read from those who have struggled with this. Sins and desires of same-sex nature are worse than sins and desires of any other nature. That's the first false narrative that I want to destroy this morning. Sins and desires of same-sex nature are worse than sins and desires of any other nature. That's one of the great failures of the contemporary church. A failure that's so significant that I believe has created more animosity than we needed to even create. Is that we've elevated the sins and desires of homosexuality above all other sins and desires. Many people love to highlight the words of Leviticus chapter 18 and the words of Leviticus chapter 20 to elevate same-sex desire to a place above other sins and desires. For example, in Leviticus 18 it says, you shall not lie with a man as with a woman, it is an abomination. That sounds ugly. And then you look at Leviticus 20 and it says something similar. If a man lies with a woman or with a man as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. And so you're saying, man, that's pretty scary. But, But first of all, let's talk about something else. The very fact of being put to death in the Old Testament really ain't that significant. There's a lot of things that you got put to death for in the Old Testament, all right? Adultery got put you to death. You got put to death. Does that make sense? There's a lot of reasons to get get put to death in the Old Testament. That's the first thing. Second thing, the word abomination is not as exclusive to homosexuality as you might think it is. Now, we love, I remember, I remember growing up and just hearing preachers rail from the pulpit about homosexuality. It's an abomination, an abomination, an abomination. It would be like an echo. Just you would hear it over and over and over and over again. And you would gain the impression from that that this was the only abomination God had was homosexuality, abomination. But when you work through Scripture, you find out something, that God has a lot of things he considers abomination. For example, Proverbs 20, exploiting the poor by overcharging for your merchandise is seen as an abomination. Proverbs 16 tells us that pride and arrogance is seen as an abomination. Proverbs 12 tells us that lying is seen as an abomination. Ezekiel 22 tells us that adultery Seen as an abomination. You start getting the impression that a lot of sin, period, is an abomination to God. Not really feeling any of it. Are you tracking with that? And so whereas some people would try to categorize or or, or put put homosexuality or same-sex attraction in its own category, the reality is, is that there are a bunch of sin that fit in that category. Homosexuality is not greater or exceeds the others. In fact, the sin of homosexuality is mentioned specifically in Scripture six or seven times. It just depends on how you see one of those verses, but roughly six to seven times between the Old Testament and New Testament totally. Homosexuality is mentioned. Compare that with over 250 times the Scripture speaks about how we should handle our wealth. 
Or compare that with the over 300 times that Scripture speaks about how we should be called to care for the, or, or the call to care for the poor. Homosexuality is spoken of five, I'm sorry, six to seven times, 250 times talking about how you should manage your money, what you should do with it, and then 300 times about how you should care for the poor. Of course, when you talk about caring for the poor and you talk about how to manage wealth, these are things that are sometimes a little more difficult to, 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 to actually grab onto, right? Every, nobody thinks they're greedy. Does that make sense? Nobody thinks they're greedy. And so it's hard to latch on to greed. The same-sex attraction, oh, we can find you there. We can latch on to that. And we can fix our attention on it and, and key in on it. But the reality is, is that God sees it just as significant as all the other sins that we struggle with in our humanity, in our fallen humanity. Genesis 19 highlights homosexuality. Leviticus 18 and 20 highlights homosexuality as being sinful. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 8. I'm sorry, 1 first, first, first Timothy chapter 1 verse 8. Romans chapter 1. All of those are the texts that, that, have, that are speaking to same-sex passions, desires that we act on as being sinful. But it's that last text I want to key in on for a second, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 26 through 27 says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, some people would like to say that this is the same sex. This isn't a, a relationship, a loving relationship between two same-sex attracted uh, uh, men or women. This is more of an abusive relationship between two same-sex attracted men or women. But that's not what the Scripture really says. It says clearly that Men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. This is not a one man who is abusing a man who does not have passion for him. This is two men or two women who have passion for one another that are engaged in relationship. As a matter of fact, one scholar uh, speaks about the passages in, in, in Scripture about homosexuality that some people would like to say they, those Scriptures don't mean what they mean. And he says of those Scriptures, there is simply no way you can get around the reality that, that the Scripture nowhere condones the conduct of same-sex engagements. And that scholar, by the way, is a man who is in, in favor of same-sex engagements. He's not, he, he says, hey, listen, I mean, I'm in favor of it, but if you're looking for me to justify it from Scripture, I can't do it. There is nowhere in Scripture that I can justify that conduct, even though I'm in favor of it. You understand that? Some people try to say, well, I'm in favor of it, favor of it, and because I'm in favor of it, I'm going to try to make the Scriptures work for me. But this is a scholar who says there is no working for you in this. The Scripture says what it says. And so when you read that, most people say, look at that, man. God's wrath is on the world because, look, look, homosexuality is a, is a product of God's wrath. Look at, look at how terrible things got. It got so terrible that homosexuality came about. That's just not reading the Scripture right. 
If you look at all of Romans 1, Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18, there's a lot of things that you see in this text. For example, homosexuality is not the cause of God's wrath. It is the fruit of, one of the fruit of God's wrath in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 says in verse 24, I'm sorry, verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passion. Verse 25 of that chapter says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so because they chose to not believe God, but, but, but to believe themselves and to believe all the lies associated with this world and with this culture and with, and with Satan and with, and, with, and, and with everything else that this world brings, even, even within themselves, because they chose to believe all those lies, God gave them over to their passions. Do you understand that? Homosexuality is not the cause of God's wrath. Homosexuality is part of the fruit of God's wrath. But also another thing you need to understand about that text is that homosexuality is not alone in its manifestation of God's wrath. Verse 28 says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetedness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. They gossip. That's included in this package. They gossip. They gossip. Let's just sit on that for a second. How many people do you know wig out about homosexuality and gossip like there is no tomorrow? They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, pride, prideful, arrogant, in other words, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents? How many people do you know wig out over homosexuality and got the baddest kids in Vicksburg? They're foolish, they're faithless, they're heartless, they're ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. And so here's what's being said. Homosexuality is not the end-all, be-all of God's wrath. It is one of the fruit of God's wrath. And the fruit of God's wrath stems not from the behavior. It stems from the belief. We've rejected God. We've chosen to trust ourselves rather than him. And thus, all these other things have flowed out of that. Do you understand that? And homosexuality is not alone. Same-sex attraction is not alone. Disobedient to mom and dad is part of that. Gossiping and slandering other people is part of that. Pride and arrogance is a part of that. Greed is a part of that. Are you tracking? God's word is ignorant of cultural change. That's another, another false narrative that we want to speak to this morning. God's word is ignorant of cultural change. God's word, in other words, is outdated, and we shouldn't listen to it. We shouldn't subscribe to it. We just got to take it, you know, where, the, where it's saying good things, we just got to take it, and when it's not saying good things, we just got to push it to the side, right? 
because it's just out of touch with what's going on in the culture. I'll say, first of all, that um, understand that the ideal of same-sex engagement being okay is not something that's even world, world, worldwide accepted. It's westernized. You go to Africa, you go to other places, India, Africa, these things aren't even considered accepted. So, so one of the things about the West is the West carries an arrogance about itself, right? And so, and what I mean by that is America thinks because it agrees with something or because it's acceptable, then it's just the right thing to do. The rest of the world are, are looking at America in certain ways and saying, well, we don't believe in that. And, and America's kind of like, well, you don't count, right? We believe in it. And so because we believe in it, it's right. And, and, not, only, and not only is it right, but we're going to condemn you over there because you don't believe in it. So keep in mind that this is not something that everybody believes in, but also keep in mind that this isn't something that was even believed in 50 years ago in this country. And so the ideal of the Bible being culturally out of touch seems a little odd when you're taking something that is so culturally narrow like sexuality in our culture. Does that make sense? Sexuality is something that is very narrow in our culture. And so to say that the Bible is culturally out of touch is to ignore how narrow it really is. But nevertheless, God's word is not ignorant of cultural change. It was never meant to be submitted to culture. God's word was meant to transcend culture. God's word is rooted in a creator and his creation and his creative, redemptive history. So to demonstrate this, when he is asked about the concept of divorce in Matthew 19, Jesus shares with the crowd these words. Verse 3, Pharisees came to him, came up to him and tested him by saying, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus is referencing Genesis in this moment. But before you reference the text that Jesus referenced in Genesis, you look at Genesis 1. And when you look at Genesis 1, you hear a whole lot about God's redemptive or, or God's creative work being seen in pairs. Okay? So, for example, in day one, you start with a pair, night and day. And in day two, you move to another pair, heavens above, earth below. By day three, you have another pair that God has created, land and sea. And all of these pairs are complementing one another and working together to show forth God's glory through their diversity. Does that make sense? Sun and moon, God makes a, makes a point to draw that out, sun and moon. Animals in the air, animals in the sea, right? He, he's making all these complementary complementary uh, units. And then by the time you get to day six, something happens. Something spectacular happens. He creates a pair that together show forth his image and his likeness. And that pair God calls male and female. And together they show forth God's creative genius. Together they show forth his likeness and his image. Together they collectively are carrying within themselves the God-like ability to create more image bearers together. 
And that is how the story begins, God pairing up these different pairs. And that points to his original design. But, of course, sin enters and disrupts everything. It distorts the picture that God was creating. And so God sends Jesus to write the picture. And Jesus writes the picture. And as we get to the end of that picture, we get to the end of that story in Revelations, we have one final pair, don't we? We have Jesus, who is the groom, and we have the church, who is the bride. And that's the last picture we get. And that pair is uniquely different, and yet together they are one. Does that make sense? As a matter of fact, in Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul, one of Jesus' greatest church planners and missionaries, says of marriage, he says this. He says, verse 5, chapter 30, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, the same thing Jesus just said in Matthew 19, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says this, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So that mystery or that marriage, that picture, is supposed to be a picture of the divine wedding in Revelations. Revelation. Christ and the church is supposed to be reflected in husband and wife. You tracking with that? Two complementary entities becoming one flesh. Notice how sexual relations is rooted in that complementarianism. Verse 31 of Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 5 says that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And so it's talking about the ideal of covenant, fleeing from, the, fleeing from your parent, parental responsibilities and engagements, moving, and now the first priority becomes spouse, covenant relationships. But then also that sex, sexual relationship is rooted in a diversity of gender. He talks about the two becoming one flesh, man and woman, husband and wife. That unit, according to Paul and Jesus, is the unit that becomes one flesh. Diversity making unity. And you see that throughout the creation, you see that at the very end of the story, and you see that now leading up to that story in every single marriage that God ordains on this earth. And so, marriage is not just simply we do out of convenience. Marriage is something that's supposed to be telling a story about God. N.T. Wright says about marriage, the binaries in Genesis 1 are very important. Heaven and earth, as we mentioned, sea and dry land, as we mentioned, and so on and so on, and you end up with male and female. And it's all about God making complementary pairs which are meant to work together. And the last scene in the Bible is new heaven and new earth, and the symbol of that is the marriage of Christ and his church, all those things we've said. So he continues, it's not just one verse or two verses here or there which say this or that. It is an entire story or narrative which is working with this complementarity so that a male and a female marriage is the signpost or the signal about the goodness of the original creation and God's intention for the eventual new creation. If you say that marriage now means something which would allow other such configurations, what you're saying is actually that when we marry a man or a woman, we aren't doing any of that stuff, the stuff we just talked about. What we're doing is just a convenient social arrangement or a social and sexual agreement. 
It seems to me that it isn't that I think that's the downgrading of marriage. Rather, it's something that's gone on for clearly some time beneath the surface that is now poking its head above the parapet. If that's what you thought marriage meant, then clearly we haven't done a very good job in our society as a whole, and the church in particular, in teaching about just what a wonderful mystery marriage is supposed to be, end quote. And I think I agree with him wholeheartedly, by the way. I think the reason why this is even an issue in terms of same-sex marriage, heterosexual marriage, all that kind of stuff, is because the church did not define marriage appropriately. They made marriage out to be, quote-unquote, contract, quote-unquote, agreement, social arrangement, a means to kids, a means to security, and marriage is supposed to be so much more. It is a picture of the divine Christ joining with his bride that has been redeemed and cleansed for all of eternity. And it's supposed to reflect that all the time. And when you lose that, you lose the substance of marriage. And when you lose the substance of marriage, in in comes the opportunities to begin to redefine it in all sorts of different ways. See, marriage wasn't redefined when we started talking about homosexual marriage. That's not when it was redefined. It was redefined when we started making light of divorce. Are you tracking with that? It's when we started making it seem like, you know, there's no big deal. Just if I don't feel it, I just don't feel it anymore. Just going, you know, you go your way and I go my way. That's not how Christ in the church is seen, right? Christ in the church is seen as this eternal union. And so because the church didn't communicate that to the rest of its, to the rest of its parishioners, it paved the way for people to make light of marriage in all other sorts of different ways. Are you tracking with that? So the scriptures aren't trying to be culturally appropriate. The scriptures are trying to transcend culture. Let's talk about a few more things before we close out. Number one. Obedience is safe and easy. That's a false narrative. What happens in, as it relates to same-sex attraction is the same thing that happens in so many other areas as we deal with sin. We think that if, the, if, if, if temptation is hard, then that just simply means that we should just stop fighting it. You know, a lot of times when people you know, they, they move on from their spouses and they commit, they, they commit adultery. You know, a lot of times they, they establish their justification and root, they root their justification in, in words like these. I followed my heart. Is that, is that tracking? You tracking with that? I followed my heart. You know what that means? This was a lot easier. You tracking with that? He looked really good. She looked really good. My spouse treats me like crap at home. This man or this woman respects me a heck of a lot more than they do. It's a lot easier to walk away from this and go to this. And so following your heart doesn't make it righteous. Understand something. Obedience was not, obedience was never easy. Never easy. You think obedience that Moses had to walk through was easy? Hey, Moses, 40 years, you're going to hang out in the wilderness. Sign up. You, you in? Oh, that's a little too hard. I'm out, you know. I mean, I, I mean this, that's, that's not how these things work, right? 
Think about, think about the calls that God has given to men and women to obedience and ask yourself, have all of those been easy calls? The call for Esther to go in and speak for her people on behalf of her people as the queen. Esther had to say, listen, I'm going into the king and I'm going to petition him and ask him to, let, to, 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 to set, in, set things in order for my people. And if I die, I die. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Man, it's really, really hot out there. <laughs> Dude, that's okay. You know, let's go. You guys ready to go? Y'all ready? You're, okay, yeah, we're going to go back. A little too hot. Daniel and the lions then? Dude, when you said cats, I thought, I thought you were talking about the, the small cat. I didn't, really, I didn't think you were talking about <laughs> real, real. No, no, no. That's okay. A little too hard for me. I'm out of here. No, obedience is not easy. And so, to my brother or sister who may be wrestling with same-sex attraction, I'm not wrestling with that. And so I can't speak to you as, if, as one who has wrestled with that, but I can, I can speak to you as one who understands, as I've walked throughout Scripture, that no obedience is easy, or very rarely is obedience easy. And some obedience may be even harder than others. And, and, so, and so for some, same-sex attraction, wrestling with that all of your life may be even harder than some of the, some of the other things that other people, arrest, other people are wrestling with. But here's what I know. I've never been in the lion's den, but I do know that God was there. And I've never been in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but I do know that God was there. And so what I'm saying is, is that there are some tests that are greater than others. But listen, if you walk with God, know that he will be there with you. He will be there with you. When he calls us to bear our cross, which he calls all of us to do, he calls us to bear our cross. And some of those crosses are heavier than others. What he doesn't say is that you will bear it alone. He says, lo, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. As you bear it, I will be there. No matter what difficulty you face, no matter what difficulty arises, yes, it will be hard, but I will be there, is what he promises. Rosaria Butterfield, a woman who herself was in same-sex relationships for years before she turned to Jesus and she began to walk out this hard, hard, hard obedience that she was called to. She was once asked, how were you converted out of homosexuality? And this is what she said. I wasn't. I was converted out of unbelief. There's no conversion from gay to straight. The conversion that is relevant in the Bible is from a heart that was at enmity with God to a heart that is, with peace, is at, at peace with God. Regeneration makes a new head for knowledge, a new heart, and new affections for holiness. The Christian answer to the issue of homosexuality is not a heterosexual relationship. It's holiness. And sexual holiness is fidelity in marriage and chastity and singleness. The church hasn't always gotten that right, she continues. Anyone who is a Christian has to give up everything, and what God gives back is up to him. You hear that? Some people have a harder cross to bear. For people who are struggling with same-sex attraction and are faithful believers in Jesus Christ, please do not give them a greater cross to bear. 
And what she means by that is that for people that are struggling with same-sex attraction, don't try to tell them that the answer is for them to get married to a hetero, in a heterosexual relationship. That's the wrong answer. The answer is, if this is what they're called to, in other words, they have no attraction whatsoever to heterosexual relationships, then call them to celibacy. Don't push them to something else, and then they got to struggle through that. Are you tracking with that? Because the answer to homosexual struggles is not heterosexual. The answer to homosexual struggles is holiness. The, actual, the answer to heterosexual struggles is holiness. The answer to adultery is holiness. The answer to uh, fornication is holiness. The answer to lying is holiness. The answer to greed is holiness. The answer to pride is holiness. The answer to bigotry is holiness. The answer is not a reverse of what you're doing. The answer is seeking the heart and the face of God through the difficulty of sin. Are you tracking with that? It has to come to a point, listen to me, folks. It has to come to a point as we are wrestling, no matter what we are wrestling with, it has to come to a point where God is simply not good, but God's word is as well. And when we read something in his word, even if that thing rocks our foundation about who we thought we were, we trust it, not because it feels good and not because it's easy, but because he said it. The psalmist in Psalm 19, that he, he writes about God's word being good. And when he writes about God's word, or, I'm sorry, God being good, and he says, you are good and you do good, and so teach me your statutes. In other words, I trust that you are good. I trust that everything you do is good. So even though everything you do, I don't like sometimes, still teach it to me. Teach me how to follow it. Teach me how to obey it. That's what we have to do, to relinquish our will into the hands of God and trust Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Master so that we go where he says go, even, where, even if where he says go is extremely hard. Sexuality is not the only source of intimacy, folks. Jesus, in this last text, in verse, 9, in verse 10 of chapter 19 in Matthew, he talks about the disciples come to him and they say, hey, this divorce thing you're talking about where people shouldn't be divorcing unless, they're, unless there's sexual immorality involved, unfaithfulness involved, that's really, really hard. I don't even know if we should get married if that's the case. And Jesus responds to them and he says, not everyone can receive what you're saying. But only those to whom it is given, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about single folks. There are people that are celibate because they've been that way from birth, people that are celibate because they were made that way by statues of men, and then there are people that are celibate that are doing it for the purposes of the kingdom. He says, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. In other words, those that are called to celibacy, those that are called to singleness, let them receive it if that's what they're called to do. Not everyone's called to do it. So notice what just happened there. The disciples came and said, man, nobody should get married. It's too hard. Jesus says, hey, celibacy is hard too. So guess what? In marriage, difficulty. In singleness, difficulty. You know, we, we think we're going to run away from difficulty if we choose one or the other, right? No. Marriage, sure, one difficulty is solved, right? 
Maybe you're not burning with sexual desire. Or maybe you are, still. Adultery's real, right? Hello. So maybe you're still struggling. Maybe you're still fighting. But people think, hey, if I get married, that's going to solve it. Nah, difficulty that you have to trust the king, you have to trust the king with. And then there's some people that say, well, if I just stay single, then it's going to be, it's going to be problem solved, right? No, difficulty. You're going to have to trust the king in both statuses, whether it's married or whether it's single. But notice that Jesus does not make marriage the end all be all. Jesus is very clear in saying that, hey, listen, there are some people that are called to walk this single life for the sake of the kingdom. And if, they do, if they're called to do that, then let them do it. Why? Because Jesus does not consider marriage ultimate. Jesus does not consider, you know, Jerry McGuire, you complete me. Jesus doesn't buy into that. No, marriage does not complete you. The most complete man that ever walked the face of this earth was unmarried, celibate, and without children. Are you tracking Jesus, never had any kids, never married, never had sex a day in his life. And he was the most complete and whole man that ever walked the face of this earth. Marriage is not the defining factor in your identity. Jesus is. Jesus is. Marriage is not the ultimate defining factor in whether or not you find intimacy or not. The West has made intimacy so connected to sex that now those that are same-sex attracted believe that if they never have heterosexual relationships, they cannot find intimacy. And that is a lie. If that's the requirement for intimacy, then that means Jesus never had intimate relationships. Intimate relationships and sex are not one in the same. First Samuel talks about David and Jonathan, two, two really, really good brothers. Jonathan was the son of a king, right? And David was the incoming king. And the Bible says that David loved, loved uh, Jonathan, loved him as he loved his own soul, I believe. I, I, hope, I, I hope I'm quoting that correctly, but loved him as he loved his own soul. And this is how crazy and messed up our culture is, is that we hear that. We hear this tight brotherhood, this deep abiding affection that they have for one another. Or we see a brother who is deeply connected to another brother or a sister who is deeply connected to another sister. And they have a wonderful bond and they'll, and they'll serve one another and they'll die for one another. And we say to ourselves, well, they must be gay. What? Do we have to connect intimacy so much to sex? Jesus does not. The only reason we have to is because we have made sex part of our identity. And it is not. It may be something that we do. It may be something that we even struggle with. But it is not who we are. As a matter of fact, Paul, and I, and I close with this line, but Paul talks about exercising his rights. And one of the rights that he talks about exercising is the right to marriage. He says, hey, shouldn't I have the right to exercise that right just like all the other disciples, just like Peter does? But he says he revokes those rights. You say, well, why does Paul revoke those rights? He says he revokes those rights for the sake of the gospel. 
In other words, Paul says, there's a higher call for me that extends even beyond marriage. And that call is the gospel of Jesus Christ, serving him with my life. And so I don't have to have marriage to be made whole. All I have to have to be made whole is Jesus. And so to my brothers and sisters that are struggling with whatever you're struggling with, same-sex attraction, heterosexual attraction, attraction outside of marriage, know that God is there, and know that is not what defines you, but it's the God of the universe who died on the cross and spilled his blood and paved the way as a single, unmarried, celibate, non-parent savior that you might be one day united to him in holy matrimony. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.